Please remain standing as we come to today's preaching passage. It comes from the book of James, James chapter 2. If you could open, open up to James or turn on your phone, you're going to want to be there as Pastor Moody preaches because he'll be referring to the text quite often during the sermon. This is James chapter 2, starting in verse 14 to the end of the chapter. This is God's word. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is God's word. You may sit down. We're looking uh, this morning at the next in our series in this uh, letter uh, from James. James, you'll remember, is uh, the brother of the Lord Jesus, and uh, he's also known in Scripture as an apostle. Uh, Paul describes him as an apostle in Galatians chapter 2, and then again in 1 Corinthians 15, and here he is uh, writing to us uh, by the inspiration of the Scripture, originally uh, a letter written to Jewish Christians dispersed, part of what's known as the diaspora. They were spread, scattered throughout uh, the known world at the time. And as we've been looking at this letter together, we've discovered just how relevant that situation is. We all sense we've been scattered. We've been socially distanced. We are part of the diaspora, if you like. And uh, in that kind of situation, there are various challenges. And James, very practically, is uh, addressing those challenges for us. Uh, The first challenge he addressed was the challenge of attitude. So easy when you're in a time of testing to begin to complain, grumble, moan. Uh, James says, no, my brothers, count it all joy. And he describes how to do that. And then uh, there's another um, challenge that comes with this kind of spreading social distance diaspora that we uh, in the world today have all been experiencing. And that's the challenge of beginning to fake our faith. Um, We know that we should count it all joy, (laughs) but we really don't. 
Uh, we know there are things we should do, but we're really not doing them. And it's easy to begin to fake it. And so James says, we need to be hearers of the word, truly, to let the word be implanted like a seed into our hearts. And if it is truly implanted into our hearts, uh, then we will be doers of the word too. We need to put it into practice. And so he's, he's talked about all that. And then we saw last week, uh, this, uh, a third of the challenges that he's addressing that comes when people, Christian people are spread and separated from each other, as the Jewish Christians were experiencing then and as many of us are experiencing today. today. Um, the third challenge is uh, what uh, the translation in English calls uh, partiality, uh, which we might call factionalism or division. Um, you're separated from one another, it's easy to begin to think in a separated kind of way. And the kind of factionalism division that was going on there was between the rich and the poor. And James has been saying, no, you need to, you need to take care of the poor. You need to love your brother, your sister, whether they're rich or poor. And of course, there's many opportunities for division, for partiality today, um, politics, um, different attitudes towards COVID, different opinions upon even mask wearing, all these things that can divide the body of Christ. And he's saying, no, don't be like that. Love your brother and sister. And so he's addressed these very important matters for us today. Uh, but now he comes to uh, some potential objections. Um, often when you're teaching, um, in any context, it's important to think to yourself, what would someone say if they were going to object to what I'm teaching? If they say, well, hold on, you haven't considered this. And so James is now considering uh, objections uh, to what he's been teaching. And really the objection is, is well, uh, I, I, I have faith. So I don't need to do the things you've been telling me to do. Isn't believing enough? I don't need works. And there are two different kinds of that objection that he's going to address. Uh, the same overall objection, but two different expressions of that overall objection. It's a very common one, of course, today. Uh, faith without works, surely that's enough. So here are the objections. The first one is from verses 14 to 17. And he articulates the objection in verse 14. What good is it? Or literally, um, to what advantage? What does it profit? What benefit is it? What good is it, my brothers, if someone says, now note that, he, he, he's not saying it's possible, this, but he's saying that someone says it. It's someone objecting. He's imagining in his mind someone saying this. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he doesn't have works. He doesn't need to work hard to count it all joy. He doesn't need to work hard to love his brother and sister who has a different political opinion to him or a different attitude to Various things, or is poor. He doesn't need to take care of the poor. He has faith. He's been saved. 
You're saved by faith. But James says, well, what good is that? Can indeed that faith save him? So that's the objection. And of course the question is, well, is that enough? Can that faith save him? How does James answer this first expression of this objection about faith without works? Well, he uses an illustration, and this illustration is in verses 15 and 16. So here's the illustration. If a brother or sister, and note, uh, as we said all along, when uh, the New Testament talks about brothers, it doesn't mean males only. It means the family of God, and James is making that clear here. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, this is a poor person. They, they, they don't, you know, it's cold outside. It's January in Chicago and they don't have a coat. They're shivering. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, um, they don't have enough to eat each day. They don't have enough bread, enough food. They, they're lacking in daily food. So you can imagine that. And one of you says to them, this other brother or sister, says to them, go in peace. Be warmed and filled, filled with food. They're wishing them well. I wish you well. Peace be to you. I hope you get warm. I hope you get some food. One of you says that. Without giving them the things that they actually need for the body, what good is that? Returning to this idea, same phrase, what good is it? It began verse 14, then again into 16, what good is that? Same idea, what benefit? What advantage? What does it profit? Of course, it's a question expecting the answer, well, it doesn't make any difference at all. It doesn't benefit. Uh, But it's so common to think along these lines, isn't it? I have faith. I've put my trust in Jesus. I've I've responded uh, when I was a teenager at that youth camp. And I, I gave my life to Jesus. Now, James, don't you tell me I need to take care of the poor. Don't you tell me I need to love my brother and sister in practical ways. Don't you tell me that that I need to count it all joy. I'm saved. I've put my trust in Jesus. It's all been done for me. And so along comes this, uh, here's the illustration. Along comes this person who's really struggling there. Hungry, they're poor, they don't have any food. And, and the individual says, look, I wish you well. Is that enough? And of course the answer is no, it's not. It doesn't benefit at all. It doesn't do any good. It's just theory. It's a particular temptation, I suppose, for those of us who are intellectuals. Sometimes we can think that if we have the idea clear in our minds, it's enough. Well, of course, James is saying he hasn't done anything. And so then he concludes this answer to the first expression of this objection about faith without works in verse 17. So also faith 
by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It's not real faith. It's not the living faith. It's a fake faith. It's dead. So that's the objection, the first expression of the objection, and that's his answer. It doesn't make any difference. It's not doing anything, and therefore it's dead. It's not real faith. But there's another um, expression of the same objection that then James imagines someone articulating, and this is articulated from verse 18 and then answered all the way to the end of our passage. So this is the, the second objection or the second expression of the same idea about faith and how it works. So verse 18, here's the second expression of this objection that James is imagining. But someone will say, you notice it's the same way that he put it in verse 14. Someone says, now here comes this other person. But someone else will say, you have faith and I have works. Now, this way of putting it is I have found over the years somewhat confusing. I have often wrestled with, well, why does James put it like that? And perhaps you have too. It seems like it would be more natural uh, for James to have put it the other way around. Some will say, um, you have works, but I have faith, which is the first articulation of the objection. I'm a faith person, and that's enough. So why does he put it like this? Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Because, as I say, this is a different expression of the same objection. What's going on here is someone else is listening to what James is teaching, James is imagining, and coming back and saying, now hold on, James. You're not being very charitable. I agree with you, it's important to have works, and indeed I do have works. But there are faith people as well. And in the larger community of the church, some people are more faith people and other people are more works people. This is a non-essential issue. Let's just get along. You have faith, but I have works. Um, the, uh, the message, which is not a translation of the Bible... It's an important distinction to make. It's not a translation of the Bible, but it's a paraphrase of the Bible. But it's a very good paraphrase of the Bible. The message puts it well here where it says, uh, in paraphrasing, it says, um, someone else comes along and says, um, you have the faith department. I have the works department. That's okay. Of course, that too is a very common objection these days. There, there are all kinds of different Christians, all kinds of different denominations. And some denominations are more into faith. They constantly preach, you've got to make a decision. You need to give your life to Jesus. Other Christians are more into social justice and taking care of the poor and having mercy and works. And let's be ecumenical. Let's, let's get along. You have faith, but I have works. It's a secondary issue. 
How does James respond to that? Well, he responds with, first of all, with sarcasm, uh, which is a risky communication technique, but sometimes a, a necessary one. So he says, second half of verse 18, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Of course, you can't show someone real faith apart from works. He's being sarcastic. Yeah, you show me your faith apart from your works. And then increasing the sarcasm, verse 19, he says, you believe that God is one. That's, um, again, this is another evidence that he's probably writing to Jewish Christians. The, uh, the statement that God is one is referring to what uh, Jewish folk call the Shema or the Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6, which is the, the creedal statement of the of the Old Testament faith. Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. And so he's imagining that this person who's a faith person says, I believe in the, in the Shema. I believe that God is one. I know the creed. I believe in God the Father, the creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, our Lord, his only begotten son. I believe. I know the creed. I I, I believe in the doctrine of, of the church. You believe that God is one. And then, as I say, somewhat sarcastically, he says, you do well. Well done. Thumbs up. Yeah, you believe the creed. Good. Even the demons believe. Because this isn't, if there's no works, it's not real faith. Of course, the demons don't believe in God in the sense that we are meant to believe in God. They haven't trusted God. They haven't submitted to God they don't love God but they believe that God is one in the sense that it's true that he is one it's purely mental assent they know that's true but they don't love God or trust God so even the demons believe and shudder, that word for shudder is used in the Old Testament in the book of Job chapter 4 where Job describes somewhat imaginatively how a spirit seemed to brush against his face, his face and cause the hairs on the, on, the, on the back of his neck to stand up on end. It's a shudder, it's a horror. They believe but they shudder, they're horrified. And then uh, he, in verse 20, then slightly switches his rhetorical technique when he says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person? By the way, when he says, you foolish person, he isn't running against uh, Jesus' teaching that we're not to call a brother a fool. This is a different word than the word that's used when Jesus says, don't call someone a fool. This, This word, you foolish person, has the sense of empty, meaningless, unproductive he's saying do you want to be shown you unproductive person that is the person who's not producing works 
Do you want to be shown that faith apart from works is useless? And this, as I say, is a slightly different rhetorical technique. This is a play on words in the original. So when it says that faith apart from works is useless, literally it's that faith apart from works doesn't work. (laughs) Do you want to be shown, you unproductive person, that faith without works doesn't work? Faith without works doesn't work. And then he um, uh, cites the scriptures, uh, the Old Testament, the story of Abraham. And this is the part where many people wrestle with James's teaching and how it fits with what Paul teaches elsewhere in the New Testament and indeed what Martin Luther taught in church history. So verse 21, this, this uh, uh, reference uh, to Abraham uh, really w- runs up until verse 24 when he summarizes it. So this is what he says. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And of course, the natural question that many, many people down through church history have asked is, well, how does this fit with what Paul teaches? And then in more recent church history, how does that fit with what Martin Luther taught? I think the best answer to that was given by someone called Richard Baxter, who was the pastor of a church in Kidderminster in, in England back in the 17th century. Richard Baxter, a holy and very practical man, basically said those who think that James and Paul don't agree, the issue is they don't understand Paul. So often we think it's because we don't understand James. And there are some things that we need to wrestle with to understand James, but truly the issue is we don't understand what, what Paul taught. So there are some terminological and linguistic differences. The way that James uses these words, justification, faith, and indeed alone, are somewhat different from the ways that Paul and others use them. But in terms of the basic idea... Paul, of course, the rest of the New Testament, of course, teaches very clearly that faith must produce works. We don't have time to go into it all, but in the book of Romans from chapter 6 all the way through to chapter 8, it's Paul's long argument that what he's teaching about being justified by faith alone doesn't mean that you can do whatever you like. That's how he begins chapter 6. What does that mean that then we can just go ahead and sin? Paul's answer, no way, by no means. So it's a misunderstanding of what Paul teaches. Or if you want a proof text for this, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10, Paul there says that we're saved by faith, not by works, but for works. We're saved in order to do good works. Well, what about what Martin Luther uh, teaches? Martin Luther famously called James that strawy epistle. 
And uh, surely Martin Luther taught justification by faith alone. Well, we have to understand what, what Luther was saying. So that phrase, the epistle straw, actually comes from Luther's preface to his translation of the New Testament in 1537. And when he called James an epistle straw, he didn't only call the book of James that. He also called the book of Hebrews, had lots of strawy elements to it, according to Luther. By the way, he never wanted to remove James from the Bible. James was always in his translations of the Bible. But in Luther's theology of the Bible and its inspiration, what's called his theory of canon, C-A-N-O-N, and Luther's theory of the canon, in Luther's mind, it was all inspired by God, but there were some parts of the New Testament that were more precious than others, had more pure gospel than others, like Romans and Galatians. And there are other parts that were lesser, like James and the book of Hebrews and, and others. And so when he said that strawy epistle, he, he also said there are many good parts to it that we should affirm and believe and follow. But for him, it was a less precious New Testament book. Now, I don't agree with that theology of inspiration because the Bible itself says all scripture is God breathed there isn't a canon within the canon but Luther was not saying that the epistle of James was not inspired by God and in fact I think Calvin had it much better when Calvin said we shouldn't be surprised when James doesn't go over the same ground as the apostle Paul yeah he has a different focus his focus is not where Paul is focusing on those who think they can be saved by their works. Uh, as Paul put in Romans 3:28, justified by faith apart from works of the law, apart from those who simply put their trust in, in, in their moral performance. James's focus is on people not putting it into practice. Well, then what does James teach in this passage? Well, he's using some of these words in a slightly different way than Paul used and we in Christian culture usually use them. So was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? So in the story of Abraham, Genesis chapter 15, Abraham and Isaac, Genesis chapter 15 through to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 15, as he quotes later, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Then it comes to chapter 22, and Abraham is put to the test. Will he practically believe God? And he passes the test. And so in verse 21, when he says, was not Abraham our father justified by works? He's using that word justified in a different way than the way Paul usually uses it. He's saying, didn't Abraham's obedience prove that he really was a believer. As William Tyndale uh, put it, we're justified before God by faith alone, but our justification before others is by our works because they cannot see our heart. It proved that he put his faith in God. And so then he says, you see that faith is active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. It proved that he really had faith. 
and the scripture was fulfilled. So Genesis 15, he's quoting, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's fulfilled in chapter 22 when he obeyed. It proved that he had believed. And he was called a friend of God. He had a personal relationship with God. And so you see, verse 24, that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. But you say, hold on. Don't Protestants say we're justified by faith alone? And here it is. It says you're not justified by your faith alone. It depends what you mean by justified. And it depends what you mean by faith. And it depends what you mean by alone. (laughs) We're not justified by faith alone. That means the kind of faith that is fake and doesn't lead to any works. We are justified by faith alone. That means that it is God who saves us, not our own righteousness. And if we accept that salvation, our lives are transformed and the evidence of our lives being transformed, or in James's word, way of using the word, the justification, the evidence of our lives being transformed is that we do works. The Puritans, I think, put it best It's an old Puritan phrase that goes like this. We are justified by faith alone, but not by the faith that remains alone. Faith must lead to works. Otherwise, it's not really faith. That's what James is saying. And to make the same point, he then very briefly refers to Rahab, verse 25, the story of Rahab who accepted the Old Testament spies, believed what she heard about what God had been doing for God's people, and therefore um, rescued them. And he says, verse 25, and in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute. I think he's using her to make it clear that he's not saying you're saved by your works. Here's Rahab the prostitute. She's not saved by her good works. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works. Justified meaning evidenced that she had believed. So in the story of Rahab you can find out that she believed the report that what God has been doing among his, his people. And therefore rescued the spies. When she received the messengers or the spies and sent them out by another way to save them. And then he concludes, for, and this reflects again verse 17, the answer to the first objection, now the answer to the second objection. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so real faith is the work of the spirit, and we become new. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works, is dead. Same conclusion as he had to the first objection, verse 17, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Conclusion to the second objection, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. It's not real faith. It's not living faith. It's not the work of the spirit. Um. 
I actually, you may surprise you, you know, I have reasonably strong opinions about decor. You may not think that rugby players care much about decor, but I do. And one of the things I don't like, and you may love this, that this not be a point of partiality among us, division, but one of the things I don't like it, it, are, are fake flowers. Now, I know some people love them, so, you know, that's fine. But personally, I don't like them. I think it goes back to my childhood, actually, when I remember sitting at a restaurant and seeing a, a bunch of what looked like beautiful fruit in the middle of the table and reaching out to grab an apple because I was hungry and very, very nearly biting into it before I was prevented from eating this fake apple. Fake flowers, fake apples, they look so perfect. They have no blemishes. The real thing's quite different. Real flowers have blemishes. Real plants in the sun as they photosynthesize. Sunlight and then water. Too much sun, they can get burnt. Too much water, the roots can rot. There are blemishes and things that aren't perfect. But the the real plant has this grand difference. It produces something. A fruit tree produces fruit. This is Jesus' analogy. A good tree produces good fruit. And so we need to pray that we have the real, the real faith, that we might count it all joy, that we might love our brother and sister, that we might care for the poor. Let's pray together. Our Lord God, thank you uh, for this teaching of James as he imagines someone objecting uh, to what he's been saying. We pray, Lord, that we might be those who put our trust in you truly and therefore are energized towards good works. Perhaps uh, there's someone you know who is really struggling right now and maybe the Spirit is prompting you to do something to help that person. Will you take a moment right now at this moment to think through before the Lord how you can practically help perhaps there's someone who's uh, divided from you over some issue maybe they're a different social class to you you take a moment right now Ask the Lord how you can love your neighbor as yourself. Perhaps you're struggling to count it all joy. Will you take a moment right now to ask the Lord to help you see his purpose, the end purpose of what he's doing in your life to make you more like him?
and so to count it all joy. Oh, our Lord God, would you pour your spirit into us so that this body of Christ, this college church, this community of believers might be energized by your spirit increasingly, that with all our imperfections that come along with life, we might nonetheless be a people who produces good fruit and energized and active in um, practical works. For we pray it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.